So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. It's more about how hospitable the leadership, the staff are, and the purpose for which the organization exists. Uh, you'll get the best out of me if I believe we're actually making an impact in the world. We're not, we're not just making money. We're not just making and selling products that, you know, just fill landfill in a few years' time. We're actually making a difference. And I, I've seen people just flourish. You know, people that started maybe as, a, as that kind of receptionist can, can be inspired to study, to work, to Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Krish Kandaya. Krish, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Lovely to meet you, Jess. You as well. I'm, I'm excited to have another another powerhouse who's supporting the Orphan Myth campaign here for our Orphan Myth miniseries. Tell me, tell me how you explain to people all the fun things you get to do. Wow. So I explain to people my a bit of my story that my mother was brought up in an orphanage in India. And not because she didn't have a mum or a dad, but because she was socially unacceptable. My mum was born, in, born into a mixed-race family. Her mum was Indian. Her dad was a Brit. And they fell in love, and they got married, and they started having babies. And my grandfather was called up to serve in the Indian Army. He ended up fighting the Nazis in northern Africa. And he died on the field. He was providing covering fire for his troops. And he got all his troops out, but he got killed. And he was given the second-highest military prize that you can get in the UK military, which was the military cross. But because he had mixed race children, they were deemed socially unacceptable. They were taken away from their mother because um, she was Indian and therefore the wrong race. And they were put into three different orphanages. And those orphanages were awful uh, for them. And I grew up uh, hearing terrible stories about uh, these orphanages. But an auntie in the UK heard about the plight of these three girls, brought them uh, to Britain in the 1950s. And uh, my mum decided that she was going to give back to society by training to become a nurse. And she did that. But it was a, it was a difficult time. You know, um, white people didn't want a brown nurse to touch them. And uh, so, so she faced kind of racism in her workplace, racism from her neighbours, they were surprised that she knew how to use a knife and a fork because they thought India was like the, the jungle book with Mowgli and Baloo. And they, they were just just very offensive to her. And so my mother began to fight a one-woman resistance campaign. Every Friday night, 
she would open up her house, she'd cook up a big vat of curry and rice, and anyone who felt they didn't fit in was welcome at my mother's house. That was how my mother fought racism. And eventually she meets my dad, an international student from Malaysia. They get married. They start having babies and my wife and my sister and I come along. And all through my life, this this picture of hospitality, of offering refuge and help, fighting racism with hospitality has been a part of my story. Uh, But the weird thing is the bit about the orphanages never got through to me. And so now my, my wife and I, we're foster parents, we're adoptive parents. I work for the UK government in adoption and foster child welfare reform our plan had been up until a few years ago that once we'd fixed (laughs) there's the audacity of us once we'd fixed the uk child welfare system we would then retire uh, to somewhere hot and we'd start an orphanage and it wasn't until recently that i had my eyes open to the damage that orphanages do and i guess that's why we're here talking together jess well it's there's a lot to unpack there. So I'm excited for this interview today. And can you talk a little bit about your academic background and, and some of the achievements on that side as well to give a bit of context? <laughs> sure. So I have a PhD from King's College London. I was on the faculty at Oxford University teaching theology and a bit of philosophy. And yeah, so that, that's some of my academic life, I guess. I've written 13 books on a variety of different subjects. But at heart, the thing that gets me out of the bed in the morning is caring for children. So that's why our family has six children. We have three birth kids and two adopted children. Sorry, one adopted child and two foster children. And, you know, we're we're in, you know, both feet jumped into doing whatever we can at a professional or a personal level to care for vulnerable kids. I love it. So my one of my biggest heroes in life is a guy named Terry Warner. Got his PhD in philosophy at uh, Yale. And and uh, oh, wow. went over and t- and was at Oxford for a little bit, and then over here to school in the states for thirty years. So I- I'd love to talk. F- we should like have a separate episode and come talk about philosophy. But definitely, sp- specifically, the, the like the biggest influences for me are kind of like two categories, and I'd love for you to weigh in on any thoughts you have. Any of this. One of them is kind of a mix between like, do you know Martin Buber? So so kind of like Martin Buber meets like like how you how you see people, whether you objectify them or not. In front of like Viktor Frankl, you always have the you always have, you always have the ability to choose or like C.S. Lewis kind of maybe thoughts. Mm. That methodology of like you know have a look in the mirror at my own blind spots, you know that I've probably been resisting and the way I've been blaming others mm. and you know contaminating problems by by my accusations and objectification of others. Okay, and then the other one is is stoicism and like the just hyper focus on personal responsibility and and this like just i feel like it's almost like a magic pill of like no matter how overwhelmed or anxious or uncomfortable i am or feeling like oh poor me like these these concepts that have worked for 2500 years of like i don't actually need to change my circumstances like if i can change my perspective if i can change my brain i can create completely different emotions inside myself and all of a sudden new ideas for overcoming the situation happen or my my willingness to endure the situation changes. And anyways, I feel like philosophy is drastically underrated in today's society. So I'm interested <laughs> to hear you. That's great. Hey, yeah. Jess, I didn't didn't expect to be talking Martin Buber, but the, 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 the game changer for me with Martin Buber's thought was this I-thou versus I-it distinction. So, you know, a, a doctor 
could look at a patient purely as a body that I have an I it relationship that, you know, I'm a body, a body gets to be prodded and, you know, measured. But an I thou relationship is when you see the other, not as an object, but as a person. And in that I thou relationship, the person is in charge of what they disclose to you. And I, I find that a really helpful way of thinking about other people. And it's important when we think about global development, for example, that, you know, if you want to go to Ghana or Uganda, instead of having an I-it relationship with those people where we do stuff to them because we're in charge and we know what's going on. If you have an I-thou relationship to Ugandans, you allow Ugandans to be part of the solution. You, you co-produce things with them. You, you listen to what their needs are instead of coming in with what can be described sometimes as white saviour complex, you see the other as a person that needs respect. So it's it's rare that I hear someone bring up Martin Buber when we're talking about development and care. So I'm so glad you did. No. The stoicism piece, I think we might have a difference of opinion in that I I, I don't find solace in stoicism. I, I'm too much of a transformationist. I think the world needs changing, not just my perspective. We need to go and punch the darkness until the lightness bleeds, uh, mm. as one songwriter said. So we, we may have a different opinion on that one. So, no, that's interesting for me because I, and and I'm probably not, I'm probably just an un, uneducated follower of stoicism because for me, it's more like, for me, I feel like it's like a, a magic pill for getting my game face on so I can change things. Instead of like, okay. Instead of slipping away into overwhelm, you know, between running, you know, three, four profit businesses and a charity and father of four and try to do church stuff and family stuff and community yeah, yeah. stuff, you know, and just, I mean, startups are, are a high contact sport. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. A lot, lot, of, lot of tears, a lot of disappointment, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so for me, this idea of like going, you know, what is it about this situation that doesn't have to be a tragedy that I can learn from? Instead, like this okay. separating out what happened for me versus the opinions I'm choosing to have about that. That's mm. probably been the helpful part. Instead of feeling stuck, instead of feeling painted into a corner by others, the opportunity to, you know, like one of my favorite stories is, and we'll move on here, but when Marcus Aurelius has this quote about the, the, the impediment to the way or the like the obstacle is the way the impediment to the way becomes the way kind of thing of like can mm. you use the rock as a stepping stone like for me the worst saying i ever heard growing up was if life gives you lemons turn into lemonades i was like this is the dumbest thing i've ever heard if that stuff happens to me i'm supposed to pretend to like it and that's what i thought it meant and like the the gandhi story about hey he doesn't have a powerful army to to kick the brits out of his country he doesn't have any army, let alone one like the most powerful army in the world at the time, right? So instead of having his weakness be the reason he can't do it, he like he pushes through that so far till it becomes a benefit of can I provoke the Brits into such an overreaction that the whole rest of the world kicks them out of my country for me, which I know is a drastic oversimplification. <laughs> okay. But I like it. But anyways, so I'm probably like a selective stoic, if that's a, if that's a thing. <laughs> that's fine. Good. Well, it's fun to talk philosophy anyway. Th thanks for bringing it up. Yeah. So so tell us about tell us about the organizations you're involved in and, and you're speaking and you're writing and, and how it relates to, you know, helping these kids and, you know, from foster, from refugees. 
Sure. So about eight years ago, I founded a charity in the United Kingdom, and it, it was a startup. It probably is a kind of medium-sized startup now. Our vision was uh, to find a home for every child in the UK care system that needed one. Not every child in foster care needs to be adopted, but many do. And it, it frustrates me that there are children aging out of foster care uh, to nothing. And if a child age, ages out of foster care to nothing, they're going to end up homeless, exploited or criminalised. And so huge numbers of our homeless population are young people that have aged out of foster care. That's the same in the US. It's the same in Canada and in Australia, actually. And, you know, some somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of our UK prison population have had experience of the foster care system and many of them have aged out of care to nothing and the people that that ended up looking after them were gang members uh, or other criminals and in some parts of the UK 70% of our sex workers are young women who have aged out of foster care. Now I meet people in all walks of life but often from churches who care about homelessness, who care about the prison population and who care about sexual exploitation and trafficking and I go it's brilliant that you care about that but these kids needed help when they were three years old and they needed a family. Why can't we get involved early when they need those families rather than waiting for the system to chew them up and spit them out? And then we try to do, you know, reparation and support then. There was so much more we could have made an impact in their lives early on. So that was the call. And, and we, we worked out in the UK, there was a shortage of 9,000 foster families and there were around 4,000 children that were in the, the system ready for adoption. And so we did the math and we worked out that we were in touch with about 15,000 churches. So this was completely doable. We just needed one new family to foster or adopt and the rest of the church to wrap around those families. And we could meet the entire current need, which would be a game changer. So that's why we started the charity Home for Good. And I would write and I'd speak. I would write on a whole bunch of different issues because it turns out people don't go to fostering and adoption seminars unless they're already kind of fairly committed so I, I my, my idea was to talk about loads of other things and show how fostering and adoption was the solution so we talked about justice we talked about hospitality we talked about making an impact in the world investing your life well and that's how we saw hundreds of people come forward for fostering and adoption but recently I was appointed by the Secretary of State for Education in our UK government to lead reform in adoption. So instead of me lobbying the government to make a change, I'm now working with the government to help them make that change. And that's been a, a real game changer. I'm, I'm learning. I'm, I'm three months in and figuring out how to do it. But there's there's a lot of common interest between what I feel called to do as a person and what the government as a corporate parent has responsibility for. So that that's the space I'm working in. But the, the thing that really woke me up to this whole orphan myth conversation that you guys have been having for a while now is, you know, there I was doing my job trying to sort out the UK care system, having this plan to retire somewhere sunny and start an orphanage at a different phase in my life was I get a call from a Swiss bank and I never get calls from Swiss banks. I was seriously hoping I had a long lost relative that had left lots of gold bullion in a Swiss bank account somewhere. And um, they say, hi, Dr. Kandaya, you know, we love the work that you're doing, finding vulnerable children homes. Uh, we understand you work with churches. We have a proposition for you. Could we give you some money uh, to help the church to value the family? And I'm going, this, this is robbery, right? Why, why would you pay me 
to help the church care about the family. If there's any group of people that you would assume cared about the family, that would be the church. And I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to tell them that this is daylight robbery, that they're giving me money for nothing. But I, I, I listen more to the conversation and they say, well, the thing is that there are, back then we, we were uncertain about the numbers. Lancet has just published a number of about 5.3 million children uh, in orphanages. And it's difficult to know how accurate that number is because lots of children are in orphanages and they're not declared to the government. They're not registered. But of what we know, 5.3 million people, uh, 5.3 million children in orphanages. And the vast majority of those children don't need to be there. They have living parents. Here's the first myth. Orphanages are not full of orphans. You assume an orphan is a child that has both parents that have died in some tragic uh, disaster. But most children in orphanages have living parents. What's happened is an orphanage is set up in a town and it's acted like a magnet and it's drawn children out of families into orphanages because families that are struggling to feed their kids and clothe their kids and educate their kids relinquish their children to an orphanage thinking that's the only way that they're going to get the help that they need. No parent should have to make that choice about whether they get to feed their child or look after that child. What, what needs to happen is those children need support in their family units rather than taking them out of the family into an orphanage. So that's the crazy myth uh, that I learned about and I hadn't, hadn't realised before that call with a Swiss bank. And it turns out that faith communities, more than any other group, driven from good intentions, are often more generous and supporting orphanages, thinking they're doing children good. Uh, and the sad thing is, is that orphanages do more harm to children than good to children. And so that's the second myth, that we need to figure a way to stop well-meaning people giving and going to orphanages. Many people, not just Christians, but all sorts of people go and visit an orphanage. You've probably seen it on your Instagram feed. If you search for the hashtag orphanage, you'll find a picture of often a Western person surrounded by black children, all smiling. And again, it looks like a very virtuous and kind thing to do. But think about it from a child's perspective. I, I met a, a lad from Thailand who had had 500 different visitors to him in an orphanage. And at one level, you go, oh, that's lovely. But you go, think about it. This child is already separated from their parents. Their parents are alive, but they don't have contact with them once they're in the orphanage. So that is a broken attachment, a broken relationship. And then a well-meaning visitor comes to the orphanage uh, and makes a friend with this lad which is lovely. He makes a new attachment. Often that visit is just for an afternoon. And so in a couple of hours, that person's gone again. And that's another broken relationship. And the next day, another person comes and another person comes and another person comes. And that actually disables the child from making meaningful, trusting relationships with an adult, because every adult they've ever known has bonded with them and then abandoned them again and again and again. And so this well-meaning decision to go and visit an orphanage is actually harming children, even though we don't intend it to. So we're trying to persuade people that giving to support orphanages is a bad idea. We need to support family reunification and family support. And going to visit an orphanage is also a bad idea because you're actually going to harm a child's emotional well-being. And that's why I, as a foster parent, don't encourage random strangers to come and spend time with my kids in my house and then leave again because we know it's bad for them. So we've ended up with a kind of two-tier global system that what's not good enough and appropriate for our children in the West is somehow deemed good enough and appropriate for those children elsewhere. That that was my aha moment, and that's how I got involved in the orphan myth. Okay, I love it. 
you know, for me, I've got such an education by just doing this mini series and, mm. you know, in the U.S. hanging out with these guys, America's Kids Belong. And, and oh, yeah. we, we've actually been working closer with them for child rescues prevention campaign. We, we used to spend a lot more time running like prevention campaigns at high schools, like for high school kids by high school kids about not getting trafficked and stuff. Right. And with COVID interrupting that and some other things, we've slowed down on a little bit right now. But what we've picked up is this idea of, of if you could help that kid get adopted and they never age out of foster care in the U.S., this is like the best prevention campaign that Child Rescue could do. And like leave out – okay, so there's obviously huge amounts of suffering and, and all the human reasons to do this, to prevent the campaign. But from like a finance perspective, do you know how much it costs to do rest – get like special ops guys? And I hang out with like cool like CIA, FBI special ops guys and i like i wish Amazing. i like the little boy me who still wants to be jason Bourne thinks these guys are cool right i love these guys i have businesses with them i employ some of them they volunteered our charity it's great but it's expensive it's expensive to raise the money to have guys like that assist the cops um or sometimes we just pay for after time for, for overtime for law enforcement or different you know depending what country where we're at right and then the 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 burden on the tax system for for processing with the kids and then like the years of therapy and the PTSD, you know, my, my mother-in-law is, is a survivor of trafficking as a 12 year old. She was unfortunately oh, wow. abandoned by her mom as a 13 year old in LA and, you know, kind of lived under the pier in Santa Monica and on the streets a bit and, and had come from a, a cycle of abuse. She was able to break. So it didn't happen to my wife, pretty close to home for us. Mm, right. Yeah. Kind of thinking about your, your mom's story there. And like purely from a math perspective, of like, I mean, over here, these guys are making like a, a thousand dollar video where the kid gets to say why they would like a forever family. And they're working with the government to make sure it's all, you know, kids aren't getting exploited, yep. whatever. And they have like these incredible rates of like a kid who is statistically unadoptable. I mean, from, you know, objectively. And they're mm. getting like huge placements within a month, half of them within a year, almost all of them within two years that haven't aged out. You know, what I mean? like it's just from a from a finance perspective like the capitalist swine streak in me that's a mile wide <laughs> right my inner my inner investor is like hey you know if the fbi considers in the us and i wonder what the uk numbers are but the fbi has said 60% of the kids they recover in child trafficking stings have been through the foster system mm. crap if we could take a huge dent out of over half over half of the kids who get subjected to this horrendous crime like from an, from a, like, I don't know. I mean, the show's about innovation and leadership, right? And I think we all love the innovations like Elon Musk makes a spaceship that can go to Mars or something. Okay. But we don't often talk about the innovations of like, you know, so-and-so figured out a new financing option. So people that never had access to that can now get access to that. Mm. And to me, it's like, listen, I'm, I'm all about helping the kids who are being hurt right now to not being, not be hurt anymore. But like going upstream a little bit, prevention, like an, you know, like an ounce of prevention, a pound of cure. Like, so anyways, you guys, you guys have won me over. So you you got one, (laughs) you got one more convert. (laughs) That was brilliant. Just uh, so much we have in common. I'm such a huge fan of America's Kids Belong. Brian Mavis is a personal friend of mine. 
we, we have collaborated on many ventures because I absolutely believe in what he's doing. And it's very similar to what we're trying to do in the UK. We've been trying to promote global conversation on this issue. So I hosted a, a summit between the UK government and the US government around adoption reform that we are we haven't inspired the right kind of people to come forward for adoption. And I had Brian speak at that as part of that conversation. The, the weird thing in the UK, I think it's the same in the US, is that the primary motive for many adopters to come forward is fertility. And when fertility is your driver, you normally want, quite understandably, the baby that you've been unable to have. And I want to flip that narrative around. Here's the innovation. Adoption is not about finding children for families. Because when you do it that way around, there's often a shopping list. You know, I want a baby. It needs to look like me. It has to have no defects. It needs to have no uh, strings, no siblings. I just, just give me the baby that I've been un- unable to have. But if we're about finding families for children, a whole bunch of us could step up. We, we don't need to be infertile in order to make a difference in a child's life. And, you know, we, we could be brilliant parents to three-year-olds, four-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds who need a loving family in their lives. And that, that narrative shift is so important. It's absolutely amazing. So we have common ground there. You want to be Jason Bourne? Perfect. He's my hero. I've got a whole teaching series on, on Jesus and Jason Bourne. What? Uh, I worked out that... Um, <laughs> I, I used to give a lecture at Oxford about that. I worked out all the heroes, right? Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne, James Bond, right? What's going on? Why do they have the same initials? What, there's something weird going on there. Uh, so I used to talk about Jesus Ben Joseph because I thought he would also then fit in with the JB <laughs> acronym. Well, it's a good thing you're like a theology professor and a churchy guy, so you can get away with that. I love it. I can get away with it. Okay, I love it so much. Well, listen, homeforgood.org.uk, a uh, great website here, by the way. I'm on uh, I'm on krishk.com, which, by the way, everyone, Krish is K-R-I-S-H-K.com. This line here about innovation, that mm. that uh, Dr. Kundaya provides consultancy in three main areas, adaptation, communication, and collaboration. I'm interested. What what do you speak about there? What's, what's the aspects of those that you emphasize? So story is probably the most important way I think we need to adapt our communication. There's a fantastic conference called the story conference where they gather all sorts of storytellers from you know whether it's disney pixar whether it's nasa or whether it's me right i'm just some small little guy kind of trying to bring innovation there but helping people connect the story with the vision that's that's an area that i'm really passionate about nasa needs to do it nasa needs to tell the story of space space exploration otherwise no one cares Uh, and you know it's a big budget um (laughs) outlay so they need to tell the story well uh, disney understand that if you haven't got a story there's no no point in special effects and they were in the wilderness for a long time until they rediscovered story for me bringing the story of vulnerable children into government uh, or business context changes the atmosphere you begin to see life through the eyes of a young child that that's the change you know my activation to be involved in this space happened through being a foster dad and, you know, a lad will turn up on my doorstep and he's got a pink suitcase, which obviously belongs to his social worker and not to him. But all his worldly possessions are in this pink suitcase. He's he's taller than me, which when we meet face to face, Jess, you'll understand it's not difficult. I'm a short little Asian guy, but he's taller than me, but he's crunched over and he can't give me any eye contact. Well, why not? 
because he's just come for accident and emergency or the ER, I think you call it in the States, because someone poured boiling water down his arm. But one of his own family members had physically abused him. And that's why he's in ER. And the next step from ER is my house. And so in he comes into my living room. And I'm normally pretty good, as it seems you are, at just chatting to anyone, getting people to tell their stories, share their life. I can't get anything out of this lad at all because he's so traumatized from what he's just experienced. And then my boys, my birth children turn up in the lounge and they use a therapeutic tool that I was unaware of. It's called an Xbox. And they challenge this boy to a game of FIFA, which is a soccer game. And uh, my boys like Arsenal Football Club. Turns out this lad likes Arsenal Football Club. So he gets to be Arsenal and my boys get to be Man United. And Arsenal beat Man United 5-2 that day. And for me as a father, I'm listening to my boys pour love and grace into this child's life just by saying great shot mate well done how did you get around my keeper you've played this before these words of affirmation from my 12 and 13 year old into this boy's life are a game changer suddenly he's relaxed in his skin he's cracking jokes and then it's dinner time and he's meeting my family the rest of my family around the dinner table and, you know, we, we, we didn't know what to cook him. So we, we thought sausages would be a safe bet. My wife's cooked up like 25 sausages to feed everybody. But this big tray of sausages is coming into the table. And before it even hits the table, 18 of those sausages are on this new boy's plate. And I'm about to kick off and say, like, what's going on? Like, you know, there's, there's loads of us here. You can't have 18 sausages. Hasn't your mother taught you any manners? How dare you? And then I'm, I'm thinking, hold on why would a boy grab 18 sausages? What, what's his experience been with food before he got to my table that he needs to grab food quickly before someone else does or there isn't enough for him? He's had food insecurity in his life. So, so stories like meeting this lad have energized me to want to change the world for him. I'll do anything I can to help people like him know the love and care of a real family. And if, if I can tell those stories in government, in front of business leaders in front of uh, the media I'm inviting you into this child's life and you'll want to fight for him too so that's how I think innovation comes by seeing the world through someone else's eyes and aligning yourself with how you can bring your skill your experience your resources in order to help boys like him and we need that we need that in America we need that in the UK kids in foster care are kids just like yours and mine and they need champions and the weird thing is this, again, relates to the orphan myth. People are willing to travel halfway around the world to adopt a child out of a Ugandan orphanage rather than care for children on their doorsteps. You know what? The child in the Ugandan orphanage doesn't need to be adopted to come to America. They need to be reunited with their birth family who love them to bits but can't afford to feed them. So why don't we care for the children on our doorsteps in our nations and give them the love and support that they need and then support Ugandan families to care for their own kids. That's, that's the way we all win. So that's, that's where I'm passionate about innovation. Tell the story, let, kids, let the world know the trouble that kids are in, and call them to action. That, that's how I try to operate. Well, I love it. And I mean, I think this is the first time it's been you know, officially recognized that the makers of Xbox are fans of Martin Buber. I'm just, I'm glad we could confirm that. I'm glad that we could recognize that, you know, this, these folks at Microsoft, you know, it's, it's official that we know that their, you know, their, their secret play has, has been announced. 
it is interesting, right? <laughs> this idea of like, yeah. you know, I know Martin Buber calls it I thou. I, I, when I'm usually talking to people about, it, I call it I you, like I it or I you, nice. right? Yeah, better. And I think about it like an I to an it or an I to a you. And I, mm. so by the way, Terry Warner, the guy who, you know, my hero for this stuff, his, my favorite yeah. book of his is called Bonds That Make Us Free, about how our bonds. James Bonds That Make Us Free? <laughs> no, <laughs> I wish it was James Bond. No, it's Bonds, Bonds That Make Us Free. And, uh, and then he's got another really great book called the Oxford papers about papers that he wrote while he was there. And my favorite of those is one called anger and similar delusions. But, but he started this group back here in the States called the Arbinger Institute. I actually moved to the States to work for them for a couple of years because I was trying to learn it better and had a number of those folks on the show. But so they've got books like leadership and self-deception that sold a couple million copies and the anatomy of peace and the outward mindset and the choice. They got a lot of great ones. I bet you'd, you'd really love them. And they, they have a, a lot to relate to the world that you work in. But, but specifically this idea of you think about that, what your boys did with the Xbox, right? And you think mm. in all the, the work we do in the nonprofit world or community work or stuff like this, I to a you really matters. But for everybody listening today who's an entrepreneur or an investment fund manager or a, you know, that are that are trying to pay the bills and hopefully save up some money to support <laughs> support some groups and send some donations to homeforgood.org.uk people. You think about this idea with our own employees, with our customers. You know, like mm. you want to attract you want to attract top talent, have a great business, have a great product, and have a reputation. That your employees actually like physically being in the office. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, 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 totally. I I um I got to speak at a something called the Global Leadership Summit, which has a live audience of a hundred thousand people, and then a kind of later audience of about four hundred and fifty thousand who paid to come to an event. Um, and it's full of amazing people like you, Jess, uh, entrepreneurs, visionaries, people that are trying to make a difference. And my talk there was entitled what my foster children have taught me about leadership. And one of the most important um, lessons I learned is around being a hospitable leader. I remember I went to interview for, you know, what I thought was my dream job. And I, I thought I'd got it, but I wasn't sure. My wife decided to do a special surprise. So as soon as I finished the interview, literally came out of the building, she picked me up in our minivan and with all the kids in the back and we drove to Disneyland Paris, which is not that far away in, you know, compared to American geographies. It's, a, it's you know, five or six hours drive and, and a ferry ride. And um, I'm in the musical, The Lion King, when the call from the recruiter came through and, and the, the, the song was, I just can't wait to be king. Right. So I'm thinking this, this is all the forces are aligning. You know, if there's a God in heaven, I believe there is. He's, he's arranged this so that I'm going to get this amazing call to get the job in. I just can't wait to be king. And the, 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 the recruiter said, well, you know, thought, thought you did a great job, really well. Done. But the feedback is you didn't get the job because you're not a bang the table leader. And I'm going, whoa, OK, wasn't expecting that. Thought I'd got it. Didn't get it. Bang the table leader. I. I don't know if I want to be a bang the table leader. Like a bang the table leader is someone who gets their stuff done by forcing their their body or their their power to to make people do what the leader wants them to do. And for me, I, I want to be a set the table leader. I want to be the leader that invites you 
to bring the best that you've got and share that so that we can make a positive difference in the world. My, my kitchen table, I've described it already. It's where my foster kids meet the rest of our family. It's the most valuable piece of furniture we own in our house, not because of what it's made of, but because what's made around it. Relationships are made around a kitchen table. It's where the family comes together. It's where we bring who we are. We tell our stories. And I want to be the kind of leader where you can tell your story. You can tell me what's going on with you. And this is why you were late this morning or what's going on with you that's making you have a, you know, you're not as productive as you used to be. And I want to be the kind of leader that invites you to tell that story and we can find a way forward. I don't want to be a bang the table leader. And I think innovators get the best out of people when they are hospitable innovators and they ask people to bring the best that they've got and they bring the whole of their life into their workplace, actually, not just the the, the, the productive bits or the professional bits. And we, we help people become the best that they can be in order that we can make the most amount of impact in the world. So I think there is a connection between all the work you're doing, Jess, in, in innovation and um, leadership and this passion that you've got to care for kids. I think those two things are connected and it's great that they're connected. You know, it's interesting. I think about my earlier statement of like, hey, you're going to you're going to attract more talent if people like if there's a reputation that people like being at work, at your workplace, mm. nobody was shocked by that. Everyone's heard that before, right? Mm. But so often, the business media or whatever, the, the it seems like the answer is we need ping pong tables and uh, more free <laughs> snacks and bring your dog to work or yeah. do the, the, that. That's why people like work. And apparently, you know, some of the folks we've had on have talked about some of the research that doesn't actually bear that out, you know, and it. it it can be tough for me because I can get pretty one track mind. Like I'm, I'm, I got my agenda and I'm getting done what I need to get done. And I'm very in my head and I'm kind of like man on a mission, a million miles an hour. You know what I mean? And so like hard lessons for me have been like finding out when my in-house lawyer at our investment fund says, Hey, so-and-so thinks you don't like her. And I'm like, why? Mm. And he's like, well, you walk in here, you walk right past your office. You never say Hi. You just go straight to the thing you're doing and you do that multiple times a day because you're always on the move. And so mm. she thinks you don't like her. I'm like, she's great. I love her. What, what, you know? And so <laughs> me like having to slow down on my agenda and acknowledge, you know, mm. and then the other mm. thing is recruit. Like I have to recruit my, my, both of, you know, my, my co-founders staff of like, Hey, listen, there's probably going to be some more handholding that needs to happen around here that I'm not as mm. wired for. And like, that's doing like, I need to make sure that I've got somebody on the team who is noticing all those things because I know that's like, I'm just, you know, I'm like a heat seeking missile. And, and <laughs> so I can, I can, you know, I can walk past people like they're the furniture, you know? Yeah. 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 I, I think you're so right. I, I've had the privilege of visiting and giving talks at, Google and Facebook, just, you know, seminars for staff. I'd love to tell you that Mark Zuckerberg was in the room. No, he wasn't. It, it wasn't that kind of meeting. But they loved, they loved the fact that you're only, what is it, like 50 metres away or 40 metres away from some free food or a ping pong table. And, and those, those perks are nice. Who wouldn't like that? But I, I think it's more about how hospitable the leadership, the staff are, and the purpose for which the organisation exists. Uh, you'll get the best out of me if I believe we're actually making an impact in the world. We're not, we're not just making money. We're not just making and selling 
products that you know just fill landfill in a few years time we're actually making a difference and i i've seen people just flourish you know people that started maybe as a, as that kind of receptionist can can be inspired to study to work to give to become you know the, the, the head of a department if they believe in the purpose and it, it's got to be purpose driven business that's that's where we come alive we, so many of the, the the wealthiest people in the world made their money through business but they invested their life into philanthropy think of bill gates you know he he's he doesn't need to be doing this he's not making money out of this but he's realized the secret to a happy life is making a difference in the world so what why don't we learn that early in our in our business careers why wait till you made your money why don't you make your money through making a difference in the world surely that's the way that you kill two birds with one stone well and and i couldn't agree with you more and doesn't that apply to our teams as well you know like sometimes being a boss is a little bit like being a parent you know you <laughs> you have to deal with some fights between human beings that you think should be more mature than this you know but but there's this like sense of care and love that that so often yeah. we have and you know i i a friend, Alex Bean, they're, they've got this fintech company called Divi that just got a bunch of money from PayPal and, and crossed mm. the unicorn mark, 1.6 billion valuation wow. and very exciting for them. And, you know, bef- before that had happened, like, I know he is really thinking about what it's like to work there and, mm. and they're doing something cool. They're, they're really changing the way that companies can handle expenses and they're eliminating a lot of ways you can like you just hop online, you can make credit cards for everything and cancel them. So you can give this employee a $168 credit card that you made in like seconds that is only for that much and great way to control costs, blah, blah. So they're doing something fancy. They're going fast, but he brought me in to speak about child rescue to his, to his people. And his like big thing was like, Hey, can you make sure there's something that these people can do to get involved? And like, that has nothing to do with more FinTech services. Right. But (laughs) I guarantee that because that wasn't a one-off thing, I know he does this regularly and that that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that happens regularly at their office that for some employees, it's going to be mean more than it does for other employees. But, but for some folks, that's really going to be something that wins them over that makes their life better. And you think about this like responsibility as, as leaders that we have, I mean, our staff, often spend more time with us than they do with their kids or their, yeah, yeah. You know, right. True. Their, their spouse. And like having the chance for them to have something meaningful is a, you know, it's a gift that is not required. Right. And, and I can slip into the same thing as lots of bosses of like, I pay them a paycheck. That's the deal. Mm. They do the work. Mm. I give them the paycheck. And it's just so underwhelming what's possible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There's so much as possible. I think that, you know, we talk about culture eating strategy for breakfast, but I, I think purpose eats everything. You know, again, knowing why you're doing what you do is the motivator. You know, everyone knows the classic story that John F. Kennedy walked into NASA late one evening and he bumps into a, a janitor and he says, you know, why are you mopping the floor? And the janitor apparently says to him, I'm not mopping a floor, I'm putting a man on the moon. And you go, that's what you want, isn't it? That you, you meet the receptionist, you meet your accountant. I'm not just making money. I'm helping people. I'm helping people thrive and flourish. I'm helping children find love and hope in the world. That That's what gets you out of bed. 
that's what that's a life purpose that's a vocation more than just a job and, and and I love it. I love I love visiting companies. I'm often you know helping working with senior staff or training, uh, or just giving inspiration to help people join the story of what their individual piece does and what the overall company does, and then what's happening in the world. And when people find that alignment, it just so energizes people. It gives people a sense of purpose and vision. And I want to work in a company like that. I want to work for a business that, that that understands its place in the world and the good that it can do. Well, listen, I, I feel like I've been getting more comments from our listeners in the UK lately. So oh, let's, let's talk specifically. What's something that our listeners in the UK, what's an action they can take? Obviously, go to homeforgood.org.uk. Yeah, so Home for Good is the charity I founded. I don't work for it anymore because I had a conflict of interest. I can't work for the government and lobby the government at the same time. But, you know, they're great guys. So please uh, get behind them. I think people need to get educated about the, the good they can do in the world. And the, the orphan myth is a great place to go. Just Google orphan myth and you will have your eyes open. It won't take long for you to realize that some of the ways we've been supporting the world's most vulnerable children have actually been harmful to children. And there are things you can do. And some of those things in, that you could do are start with you in your family or as an individual. Uh, would you at least consider local fostering or adoption? Uh, some of us have a plan of our lives that, you know, we're going to live in this big house and we'll get married and we'll have 2.2 kids and a dog. Well, or could one of those children be adopted or fostered? Could that be part of the vision of what you see in the future? Some of us run companies where we employ people. I think care leavers children that are aging out of care at 18 they need all the help that they can get and many countries in the world uh, the uk included have schemes to help care leavers enter work through apprenticeships through preferential interviewing there are ways in which we can give kids that have had the hardest start in life a better start for the rest of their lives and so thinking about employment that would be fantastic of course you can give Money's the least you can give, right? Money, money's important, of course. Charities need money, but money's the least you can give. Is there also time that you can give? I've worked with advertising companies who said, look, I, I want to give our talent to help spread the message, right? Kids in America need adopting and fostering. How could your company spread the message, either internally or externally, uh, or using your creative skills? You know, there are so many ways that you can be part of this movement, and money is the least you can give. So, uh, I think there's there's loads of practicalities. I, I'd love to talk more. I, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm kind of addicted to it. So find me. I think I'm the only Krish Kandaya that's there, and you can find me on Twitter too at Krish K. I'm always up for a conversation about ways that we can bring our skills and talents to help the most vulnerable kids in the world. You know, this has been great. Maybe if we could leave, uh, I know we've only got a couple of minutes left. Can you just tell me one of your, one of your favorite success stories of doing this work? Tell us about one of the kids. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. So, okay. There's, there's a call that comes in on a Friday afternoon and it's a dangerous time for a foster carer to answer the phone on a Friday afternoon because you know by about 4.45, the office is going to close soon and they're desperate. So this call comes through and the lady on the end says, you know, Chris, Miriam, we, we know you've already got a lot of children living with you. Could you possibly take another child? And uh, my wife's like, yeah, of course. And I'm like, hold on. Like, what do we know? We don't know anything. Tell me something about this child. So um, the social worker says, well, I, I can't tell you much, 
all I can tell you is he's a biter. Now, that's not what you want to hear, right? <laughs> that's probably the least likely thing you want to hear. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, what does he bite? Does he bite stuff? I can cope with him biting stuff. Like, our furniture's got teeth marks on it already. No problem. But if he bites people, where's he been? Like, what's he been exposed to? Is, is that going to be safe for my other kids? Do we need inoculations? Like, biter, that's not good. And then I'm having an internal dialogue in my brain. And you as a philosopher, Jess, will... Uh, appreciate this you know there's a part of my brain that's like just risk averse no way thinking of all the dangers and then there's the kind of moral part of my brain maybe the spiritual part of my brain that says hold on stop biter is an inadequate description of a human person you and i are more than the worst thing we've ever done it's not fair for this label to be on this child and so that that part of my brain won the conversation that day and he comes into our life He's three years old. He's had eight different family placements already. He has speech delay because he doesn't know who he is or where he is in the world because he's not had a secure enough relationship to flourish. So is it any wonder that he might bite just to let the world know that he's here? So fast forward nine months, this boy has brought all sorts of joy to our lives. He's bitten a lot of stuff, but mostly sausages. Sausages is a big theme in our family. I don't know why. Maybe it's a Brit thing. And he's he's thriving. He's great. You know, I, I, we've totally fallen in love with this little boy. He's from a, an African background and he's just brought delight into our, our family. And I, I was traveling home uh, from work in London on the train, a commuter train, and I'd left my phone on the train and someone had handed it in at the next station. And so, you know, I'm home and my wife gets this call from my phone and, and, and we arranged for me to go and pick up the phone from the next station. We realized that this three-year-old had never been on a train, as far as we know. So this is the day he's going to experience going on a train. So I drive up to the station. He's holding my hand on the station platform. He's jumping up and down because he's so excited. The train comes in. It's a kind of modern one where the train doors open like the Starship Enterprise doors. And in he gets, and he does everything wrong. This is a train packed full of London business types going home, all sat behind their evening standard newspaper. And this little boy stands on the seat in britain that is nearly a capital offense you do not stand on the seat your feet are firmly on the ground not on the seat he has his nose pressed against the window and he shouts everything he can see bus tree car sheep bridge faster 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 (laughs) the whole train is laughing and enjoying it it's only an 11 minute journey so they can cope with this but I'm, i'm having a moment maybe a spiritual moment right because this boy couldn't speak when he turned up at my house That's why he bit, you remember? And now I can't stop him speaking. He's loving this moment and I'm loving him loving it. And I'm thinking this is the highest privilege that a human being can know, isn't it? To see someone have some form of transformation. He's got a long way to go, lots of healing to happen in his life. But I get to experience some little stepping stone on that journey for him. And it was an absolute joy. And, you know, it, it's an incredible privilege being a foster parent. It's an incredible privilege being an adopted parent. It's not all little Annie dancing into the sunset with Jamie Foxx as they live their life together. It's often a rocky, difficult journey. But there are moments of great joy that are absolutely invaluable. No amount of money can ever replace that experience of pouring joy and compassion and grace into a child's life. So I'd invite all your listeners to at least consider whether fostering or adoption locally might be part of their life journey. 
I love it. Can't think of a better way to end. Well, thanks for the work you're doing. Thanks for coming on the show. And hopefully we can stay in touch. Thanks, Jess. Let's have that conversation about Jason Bourne and philosophy sometime. Okay. I love it. Thanks again. Bye now.